0: It's that time again. It's Greek for the Week. I'm Chris Palmer. Let's open our Bibles and get right down to the original language, the Greek. All right, this is going to be a good Greek for the Week for you Bible nerds out there like myself. If you really love studying the Bible with depth, this one, you're going to like it. This is a special edition Greek for the Week for you. That's right. This is not even in congruence with any social media posts. This is just me. Teaching you a Greek for the Weaker. This is the benefit of having <laughs> the Greek for the Weaker podcast. Sometimes I bring things to you that I don't bring on Instagram, and I say, This is for my podcasters. I want to I go explore. This is going to be a little longer, probably. Matter of fact, we'll see where, where I cut it off at. But I'm going to share with you what I preached at my church on this past Sunday. Because it's relevant for Greek for the week and for our studies in the apocalypse. And I, you know, I hope that as you go through uh, these, you, you're learning bit by bit and piece by piece. And y- you know, maybe you take notes on it, maybe you don't. But at least it should provoke and inspire study somewhere else. And these, this could be a springboard or a spring pad. I really do hope that. I mean, that you're using this to be a spring pad. To go into further studies. But, and at this point, where I'm at in my life, I'm doing studies in the apocalypse and preaching from the apocalypse and... And um, really just having a great time with what God said. One author, one theologian, I should say, he calls the book of Revelation the climax of prophecy. It's through the book of Revelation or the apocalypse that all prophecy, both New Testament and Old Testament, comes to a head in the final climatic eschaton. And that's just very true because of all the allusion to Old Testament that's in the book of Revelation. Uh, but not yet, not, I've said this before, not one quote from the Old Testament, not one direct word-for-word quote, but many allusions, many pictures from it. And we have to understand that there. Now, when you approach the book of Revelation, you gotta—you don't, you may say you don't approach it with any type of lens or bias, but you are, because you've never been influenced by no one. In other words, you have not an influenced, And maybe you don't think scholars have influenced you, but scholars have influenced the way our pastors preach texts today from all over. So, however... You're acclimated to hearing the book of Revelation. That's been influenced by scholarship. Now, that may be uh, preterist scholarship, which I disagree with. I'm no, I am not a preterist. Uh, Dispensational uh, scholarship. Mm, I used to be into dispensationalism, but I think it has its valid points. But I would say that dispensationalism does not work a lot of places in Revelation. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Or you can approach it from the point of a uh, cyclist like myself, who believes that this is being taught in silos. I don't want to get into that today. But dispensationalism is an idea that there are different dispensations, that things have been divided, that time has been divided into dispensations. And within each dispensation is a period of time, whether long or short, as Fenestake might tell you. Uh, where God has a certain perfect plan, and within that he deals with mankind on a, a different basis and he changes the way he deals with mankind based upon the regulations of that dispensation and and <clears throat> the, the last seven years of the dispensation that we're currently in which is known as the dispensation of grace is going to be the the tribulation and the last three and a half years of that seven years is going to which is daniel's 70th week from the book of daniel okay and that's going to be the last three and a half years will be the great tribulation. And it's during the time of the tribulation that before, prior to that, if you're pre-trib, you believe the rapture takes place before this, if you're mid-trib, somewhere during it, and of course, if you're post-trib, you believe it happens after, or Christians go through the full tribulation. Now, dispensationalism, uh, because it looks at um, Revelation this way, it leaves a lot of room for eschatological speculation, uh, probably too much room. Now, I believe there's eschatological, which means end time, fulfillment to the book of Revelation, but. If you leave so much room for it, uh, you get into things like who's the Antichrist? Every time there's a political leader that somebody doesn't like, the anti- they're the Antichrist. Let's take their name. Let's add up numbers. And this has been going on ever since the time of the first century. And it's going to keep on going. If certain people don't like the president, the next president that we have, uh, be that in two and a half years or six years, they're going to they're gonna say that about that president. And then the next time Islam or some other false religion continues to spread its wings, they're going to say, okay, this is the great poor, this is the beast, blah, 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 and we're just going to, it's just going to keep going on and on, and books are going to keep being written about the blood moons and this and that, and cataclysmic happenings, and there's going to be an eclipse, and and that's what you get, that's what you get when you approach Revelation with an eschatologically dispensational point of view, and if you're determined to stay within the framework of dispensationalism, that's what you're going to get. And you're never going to be able to move outside of those parameters. And there's always going to be that in there. Now, you might be a dispensationalist that doesn't like the conjecture conjecture or the speculation, but that's what you're still going to get. And you're going to have to spend time sweeping that off of the floor uh, as best as you can, fighting against it, but you haven't changed the way that you approached it. And the the point of the study is not not to refute dispensationalism, because I think there's some good dispensationalism, but... Maybe to suggest that there's another way to approach the book of Revelation that we can gain further insight and and look at it from. And we're going to look at that. And uh, so if we go to the book of Revelation, we're going to see, first of all, that Revelation was influenced by apocalyptic, Jewish apocalyptic literature. That's very important to understand that, that Revelation is an intertext. And when you approach Revelation through intertextual study, we not only examine what the text itself says, what Revelation says itself, but we're examining what text may have influenced the writing of Revelation. You say, oh, no, 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 You don't say that. This is a unique document in and of itself. Well, it is a unique document, but John had influences just as much as Matthew and Luke had influences when they they went off of Mark. And so I believe John had influences that show up and that when we hear John, we're also hearing people that are behind him Okay, and the people that had influenced him and the writings of the time that influenced him. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 1-1 in the Greek, okay, you'll find out it's a little bit different. I mean, in Revelation 1-1, in English it says the revelation. But in Revelation 1-1 it says apokalupsis, which means the first word we get from Revelation is Apocalypsis. And you know that, of course, is saying it's unveiling of Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ unveiled this mystery and gave it, to his servant John, who then delivered it to the church, seven churches of Revelation, got it and, and had that letter go on, and he recorded his visions over a several-month period, understood that. But it also was identifying what I believe, and I, there are scholars that would back me on this, that this is identifying the apocalyptic genre of the time. Apocalyptic genre of the time was a book that dealt with confronting political problems, confronting political idolatry in the face of God's end-time coming eschatological kingdom. It was theodosian in nature, which meant that it was trying to be a theodicy or an explanation for the evil and the suffering that takes place in the world and how we should respond as Christians to the evil and the suffering that's in the world. How do we look at it when we see that there's Christians being killed, when we see that there are good people that lose their lives every day? that How do we respond to those questions? And if you look at Revelation like it's theodosian, in its nature, you say, man, maybe there's a lot more in this than just getting a, a, a survival pack and and hanging out in the bomb shelter, which people look at Revelation, they, they think that's it. I don't make them light of those people, but I, I don't think I think there's a much richer study. And until you've gone this route, maybe you should give it a chance, or at least keep your ears open. Okay, so there's a lot in Revelation that uh, when the Holy Spirit He designed this and He wrote this, He put importance into it. Now, let's just go back and summarize for a second what's taking place. John is on the island of Patmos. Now he's there and he's a political prisoner busting rocks in the stone quarry, 90 some years old. And he he has this vision experience, which today is in Patmos and the Cave of the Apocalypse. You go visit the site. So he starts recording these visions. Now he has to send this letter over into Asia Minor, which is still Roman Providence, and he doesn't want to get caught. So he has to write in a manner where if it is taken or intercepted by somebody, they couldn't understand the message. Now, a Roman officer probably wouldn't understand it because they're not Jewish. And, but Jews would understand it. So if you're writing in apocalyptic style, it's a very figurative style. It uses symbolisms and numerology for greater truths. And the only way you can understand that truth and the numerology and catch those things okay, is if you're up to speed with what Jewish numerology and symbolism say. And even if you are, you still you might understand it, but you're not going to be able to prove it. So it's kind of an obscure way of writing, and it's very slick, and it's smart. So he's writing in this style, all right? But also he understood that he was the last apostle that remained at the time. Everybody else has gone home to be with Jesus. Everybody else was dead. They'd been martyred. They'd been killed. John was the last remaining apostle. So he was really, if he wasn't a big deal, if he was a big deal before, then he was a huge deal now because he's the last remaining original apostle that walked with Jesus. Now, other apostles are named in Scripture, like Andronicus and Junius, but nobody... The level as the original twelve, they walked with the Lord. They were handpicked by Jesus. That gave you a special credential at that time, and you were the head of power, right? So he said, "Hmm, well, I'm the last one that remains." So he understood that it's likely that people are going to not just just read this letter out loud. See, according to Revelation one 3 it says, "Blessed the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy." Okay, so it was to be read aloud in churches. But John knew that there's probably going to be people that take this letter and they copy it and they make copies of the letter and they pass it around and they're going to study it with the same intensity that people study Old Testament prophecy. So he said, I'm going to do something. I know that people are going to study this this letter intensely, so I'm going to deliver. I'm going to really deliver something special to them for people that want to go through it prayerfully and people that want to study it, that there's good takeaways in there. So he meticulously knits together this literary gem where he uses literary style, literary structure to put things in there that could be discovered by people that went through it prayerfully and went through it uh, uh, studiously. Now, when I get to this point, some people say, nah, that's not how it was. Well, you don't... Based on what? We think sometimes that when the Holy Spirit inspired writers... That it was kind of like the uh, the seismograph when or was it the seismograph that measures seismic activity that all of a sudden the, the ground starts shaking and it just starts writing uncontrollably and that's what we think sometimes happened to the apostles. I, I don't think it was like that. I think that because I'm a writer and I understand that when I ask the Holy Spirit to anoint a book, I don't just sit down and all of a sudden I'm taken over by the Holy Spirit and just start typing at a million miles an hour and five hours later I have a book. I wish it. I believe me. I wish it was like that. I wouldn't need editors. I wouldn't need uh, people to, to proofread it. It would just be, boom, it would be perfect. I don't think that's how it was. I think that they were they were influenced and moved by the Spirit to write. But they had ways of writing. They had literary style. And God allows place for that. And I think that's what he was doing here. I really do. And so, understanding that, it's possible, and you're going to see in just a second, that John takes the theology, some of his theology, the emphatic points of his theology, and he buries it in Revelation, and he uses numerology and symbolism to insert some of his theology in the book of Revelation, which is very, very interesting. Numerology puts it in there, things that we need to pay attention to. Now, if you were a first century Jew uh, and you were living, maybe even by this time, coming close to the second century, early, early, early second century or late, late, late first century, you would say, hey, you know what? I, I don't need Pastor Palmer. I don't need... A professor of theology to stand next to me and tell me what these symbols mean because I know them. I'm up to speed with with uh, apocalyptic literature. Now, there were other apocalyptic that apocalyptic literatures going around at the time. Now you can look at 2nd Baruch and Fourth Ezra. They were those are probably the two most popular and first Enoch chapters 27-34, because first Enoch has different chapters in it. Book of the Watchers, probably a lot earlier dating than that. But that was a popular book that would have been understood by Jesus, and they kept adding to it, and and it's not sure which one influenced the other. People were trying to say, well, did Baruch, Second Baruch, influence Fourth Ezra, the Fourth Ezra, influence Enoch, which influenced which, and which of these subsequently influenced Revelation, or did Revelation come first and influence the other? And if you look at, if you look at, a lot of the uh, uh, these books here, you'll see that they all were very very similar. I mean, they were extremely similar, and there's no way around the fact that they were influencing each other. So what what are we to conclude about that? We can conclude that there was probably a bigger tradition that was going at the time that 2nd Baruch, 4th Ezra, and John were aware of, and they followed their writings in light of this tradition from the past. So they were going by this greater tradition. If you look at 2nd Baruch, 4th Ezra, 1st Enoch, 37, you'll see that there are passages that especially the old the theme in there, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, that runs throughout all of them. So probably something subsequent to all of these tradition, a tradition, is influencing them all. Okay? With that said, let's look a little bit at Jewish numerology that influenced the tradition. There's very important numbers in that that meant something. For instance, the number four meant the earth. That's why you see the four winds of the earth, things of that nature. Number 12 is very important because it represents government and governance. And the most important number, and we won't get into all of them, but the most important number, uh, well, you have six, which is the number of man. But of course, the most important number of all of them was the number seven. Now, this was the divine number because it was God's divine number. It all begins in the book of Revelation, where or, or the book of Genesis, where there was seven days to the uh, seven days uh, to create the earth. Not just seven days to create the earth, we see it running throughout the idea of completion in totality. How many deadly sins are there? There are seven. How many? Uh, how many times did Naaman get dipped into the Jordan to receive his healing? Well, seven times. Um, and, and, and you really see it throughout. We, we don't have to go through all the seven. How, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. How many times did he go around Jericho? He went around it seven times. This is not just coincidence that it keeps showing up. So, Jews understood. Seven, important number, represents completion. So, is it possible that John is going to take that number there, and he's going to pair things in sevens through the book that he feels are extremely important things that you better make sure that you catch it because it has the theology of the book of Revelation wrapped up into here, and so perhaps not perhaps more than likely we'll say ninety eight and a half percent likelihood here ninety eight point five seven three, all right is that those that were listening to it in oral perform performed okay they would say they wouldn't catch it but if they were studying it they'd say hmm look at this This is in sevens here. So, many times we say, well, you know, I just want to read the Bible, devotionally. That's good. But if you really want the full mind of God on things, it's very important for you to take time to study. Very important for you to acclimate yourself with biblical tradition, customs, and understanding things that are even outside of the text that surround the world of Scripture, so that you're able to understand what's going on in Scripture. If Jewish Christians, first century at this time, didn't understand anything that had to do with Scripture. They wouldn't be able to catch this. So, times of study are extremely important. You don't want to negate those. If you're a pastor you're a minister, you have to study. You have got to acclimate yourself and be around good teachers in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean you have to preach everything that you've learned. There are a lot of things I just don't preach because it's not time to preach it. I don't feel it's relevant for the time. It just doesn't fit anywhere. But I know them, and that that influences the way that you're able to communicate and talk about the gospel and engage in conversation. A lot of times not even just for pulpit preaching. It's for engaging in discussion and and things of that nature. Okay, so acclimate yourself. That's not just—I understand that we're supposed to dumb things down for people that, uh, that are just n- new beginners, but if you can dumb down, you should also be able to go up to the next level. Don't just be someone that just knows how to dumb it down. Be someone who knows how to take it up to the next level for people that maybe want to engage the Word of God more higher than that. Are those people not important too? I don't understand sometimes why we give priority to people that are maybe new Christians and or barely saved or not so sure if they want to be saved. No, they're important. But what about people that are are looking for the meat that's in God's Word? Are those people not important too? For some reason we resent those people. I've noticed an attitude or resent the oh you really want to be deep. Why do I want to be deep? Well, because. Look at how John wrote. John wrote, you talk about deep. Revelation's pretty deep. But if you're a first century Jew, it's not that deep. I mean, the symbolism comes off the page to you. But he also said, well, I'm going to give something else for the deep hearers. And he put concentration on it. So we got to be able to do both. Perhaps the most, in, the, the first, let's talk about some of the things that we see in sevens here in the book of Revelation. One of them is, of course, the seven churches. And if you, have an order, Letters from Jesus. This is a good commercial break. Order Letters from Jesus on Amazon.com. It'll be a blessing to you. Because we talk about seven churches. Seven is the number of completion, which meant that this was a message for the whole body of Christ. It wasn't just for Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. It was for all the churches that were out there. There was, all, of course, more churches in Age of Mind. There was Hierapolis. There was Colossus. Okay, churches around about Galatia. But, you know, he pick seven. And we won't get into why he probably picked those seven churches. But more than the seven churches, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, let me get to my Logos Bible software here. I use Logos a lot. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And this is a beatitude. Beatitude begins with the Greek word makarios. Makarios means the blessing of God. God's, pl- God's pleased with you. You have you have incited God to be pleased with the way that you behave. And I really want that. I really want to be pleasing to God. The best blessing that I can have in my life is to be pleasing to God. Well, so you'll notice that the first blessing are for people that read and hear the words of His prophecy. But lo and behold, there aren't just one beatitude in Scripture, in the book of Revelation. There are seven beatitudes. Now, this is going to be interesting to you. You'll see here, and I heard the voice, Revelation 14 and 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, or Blessed are those who are faithful unto death, is another way of saying it. Okay, so you see here that there's a blessing for being faithful unto death, being faithful unto the Lord up to the point of death. And that's not it. Revelation chapter 16 and verse number 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed, okay, blessed or makarios, is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So blessing for being watchful in light of the second coming. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 9 says, And the angel said to me, Write this blessed, okay, or markarioi, plural, are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Or those who have standing and position of entrance to dine and supper with God. Uh, And it's the marriage supper. This supper is the word for dinner. Dinner is extremely important in the Middle East. I've been... Or uh, Middle Eastern culture and, and uh, more Mediterranean culture. Okay, I mean this is talking about a marriage supper, and the Greek word is deipnon. Now, being in the Mediterranean many times, I will say that breakfast is not that important. Breakfast is usually light, and lunch is pretty nice, but the big one is dinner. You don't want to miss dinner. That's important. And when you eat dinner, you want it to be with the closest people. You don't want to have, if you're going to eat with your nemesis, you might want to do breakfast with them because that's quick. If you want to eat dinner, it's going to be people that you like and that you're comfortable with. Jesus inviting people that he truly likes, people that are pleasing to him to the marriage supper of the land. They have that invite. That's a very important thing. And then, of course, Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to go there here. And verse number 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Now, that's really important people that have entrance in the first resurrection or hope in the first resurrection. That means that they're hoping in more than just this life. They see life and it's beyond this life. There's more to life than what we have now. They're actually looking unto the second resurrection. And that's really a blessing to be able to not be afraid of the next life, to know that our hope is in the hope to come. You know, salvation is a hope. Some people want to say, well, you we laid hold to all the benefits that we have in Christ right now. It's not true. our salvation remains a hope, and hope means that we don't have everything that we are going to eventually possess. We have to hope for it, that that day is coming, and look to it with expectation. That's what hope means: is to anticipate something, uh, fully confident that it's going, that it's going to come. And if we had it, we wouldn't hope for it. All right, I'm wearing a, a baseball hat right now. I'm not hoping for it. I have it. Hope means it's not there yet. All right. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Oh, so it's telling you that it's not just saying the Bible. It's talking specifically about Revelation. It's blessed is the one that they keep the book of Revelation. And twenty-two fourteen, 14, the seventh one here. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let, oh, that's 17. I figured that was something wrong. Seven. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of the book. So he, he says it again. All right, that's 7. 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. There we go. All right, now I knew you didn't say it. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter this city by the gates. Okay, so clean robes, living a righteous life, all right? Not dirty robes, putting on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Living a righteous life. Listen, there's no greater blessing than living a holy life. Staying out of sin, staying out of the dirt, staying out of temptation. It's a blessing because it gives you access into the tree of life, and enter the city gates. At that time, cities were walled off by gates to keep intruders out, to keep foreign people out that didn't have access in there, They didn't have citizenship in there. And when you had your white robes, you have access or citizenship into the kingdom of God. It's a blessing. So what do we have here? We have seven beatitudes for those that hear and understand the book of Revelation and do and obey the word of God, people that are faithful to death or are faithful to the call to follow Jesus up to the point of death, it is the most important thing. They're not walking in idolatry, whether that be the idolatry of self, the idolatry of family, the idolatry of friends, or what people think of them, their opinions, readiness for the Lord's coming, and being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which means having fellowship with God. Uh, there's a blessing in looking to the next life, not just storing up treasure in heaven, and obeying the instruction that's in Revelation, as well as living a righteous and holy life. Now, I will tell you this. Seven blessings. These are the blessings of being a Christian. Now, oftentimes we think the blessing is this and that, but really the true blessing, the truly blessed life that we're going to live, okay, is not having a Beamer or a Bentley and rolling and balling and being awesome like that. Um, those things are nice to have, and they're not bad if they get in the way, unless they unless you're greedy about them or have to step on people to get it or misappropriate funds to do those types of things, but there are Christians that are legitimately rich because they do well in business. Honest living. But those things shouldn't take the place of Christ. Not hating on people that have that stuff. But that's not where our hope lays. And we should never put that as a priority beyond Christ. And that's really not even the blessing of serving Jesus. The blessing of serving Jesus is the hope in the life to come and to know that he's with us now in our current life and that we have a greater hope in the life to come. Now, now, now that is the sevenfold blessing of Revelation. People would have seen this and said, this is the summarization of the book of the message of Revelation, remain faithful to Christ to death, and also having God's blessing. It doesn't stop there, though. There's still more things that are listed in pairs of seven throughout the book, and people miss them because, well, they're going through the book and looking for lists, but you have to go throughout the whole book, not just one specific list. Now, there's a very, very important saying in the book of Revelation. It's kurios o theos ho pantu Krater, which means the Lord God Almighty. Do you know how many times this is used? It's in Revelation 1, 8, 4, 8, 11, 17, 15, 3, 16, 7, 19, 6, and 21, 22. I'll say it again so you don't have to rewind. Revelation 1, 8, 4, 8, 11, 17, 15, 3, 16, 7, 19, 6, and 21, 22. The Lord God Almighty, kurios otheos Pantukrator, which means that He is God and He is Lord Almighty. Now, that's not enough. The phrase, o kasemenos setitu throneu, or the one who sits on the throne, is you seven times, 4 nine, five, one, five, seven, 5 13 7-15, six, and 21, and verse number 5. The one who sits on the throne. Why is this so important? This would have been extremely important, because if you believe in the later date of Revelation, which I do, 96 AD, 95 AD, something like that. I said in my book 95, probably, you know, somewhere around that. It's 96, 94, I compromise, 95. Okay, you get the point. It was around the time of Domitian, when he was coming and becoming the emperor, and he was going to start persecuting the Christians. Now, there's allusion to the book of uh, to, the, to the Emperor Nero in the book of Revelation. It's another study for another time, but not necessarily near, to, for Nero to have been in the book of Revelation doesn't necessarily mean that he had to be alive and present at the time. He's symbolic of the Roman Empire, the beast, and false religion that's politicized and pushed down people's throats. Um, beast worship. That's Neronian. Be as it may, he sat on the throne. Domitian sat on the throne, but. The illusion of curious oteos crater or hokathomenos um, tetio to thronu or thrones suggests that he's not on the throne. The one that's really on the throne is the Lord God Almighty, the one who sits on the throne. Seven, seven times two. Okay. It is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one that sits on the throne. And that would have been really important for Jewish years to hear at that time, because now they're saying, oh wait, John's trying to tell us something in the midst of this persecution, difficulty, in the midst of an emperor that we can't stand, who's political. It is Jesus that sits upon the throne. So everything's going to be fine in the end. He's the one that's going to make the final decisions. And you can apply that any way you want in your life. Maybe you live in an area where you don't, uh, you're persecuted by the government. Maybe you're looking at the world today, you see what's going on in the Middle East, you see what's going on in these communist countries, and you say, oh no. But you understand, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. And that's not going to change until he comes. And when he comes, it's not going to change. He's just going to have his throne here, visibly, tangibly, and physically upon the earth. All right, more numerology, and then I'll wrap it up for the day. I hope you understand a little bit more about how the book of Revelation works and ways that you can preach it. If you set yourself up chronologically, and every time you want to preach something out of Revelation, you take a deep breath because you think, I can't preach Revelation 18 till I preach 17, till I preach 14. I got to go through this whole thing because it builds upon itself. It's not necessarily the case. That's dispensational. And you. Backing away from dispensationalism for a minute. Give yourself a break from it. That's what I'm telling you. Why pastors haven't the only the only way they preach Revelation is they do it in series. They say, been five years since I preached Revelation. I guess we're gonna have to do a series on it. It's gonna take six weeks, and I should put that in the winter time because there's not that many people in my church in the winter time, and we can do it there. No, 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 that's not how it should be. You can preach any time you want if you know how to look, identify the structure of the book and know that it's just not some chronological theme. And if you understand if you break apart the chronology of it, uh, that dispensational perpetuates, you can just pick it at any time. Preach anywhere you want because you understand the message and you understand numerology and symbolism. If you want to preach on the beach, you can preach on the beach. You can talk about ten uh, seven-head, ten-horned beast that comes up out of the sea. Boom. Start working with that. And then you don't even have to go back and forth. You just stay there with it because it's symbolic. It represents a big truth. All right. And if you like dispensationalism, great. Go with it. I'm just saying. I just want you to look at it a little differently today. Because we're Pentecostals, and Pentecostals are traditionally dispensational, which I don't understand why they picked that, because dispensationalism was, uh, comes from uh, modernity. It's uh, a way that they, the the fundamentalists, like B.B. Warfield, etc., etc., theologians like himself, they handled uh, modernity and and respond to to, uh, the enlightenment of the day. Then Pentecostals picked it up, although they differed from Modernist in a lot of ways, modernist theologians. and now here we have dispensationalism we're like, hey, this kind of doesn't work for us a lot as Pentecostals. So we have to kind of figure out a different hermeneutic here. And I think approaching the, 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 the New Testament book of Revelation with an intertextual approach, speaking theologically, is probably a great way to do it. Now if you're unfamiliar with theology in this terms, maybe it'll maybe it'll inspire you or you've turned it off by now and you're like, yeah, it's duty either way. That's what Greek for the week is for. We're not afraid to talk as theologians amongst pastors. All right, this is really powerful. I don't want you to miss this part. Understanding that seven was a number that represented uh, completion, wholeness, and divine. It's important that we look at some other things. Revelation chapter 21, verse number eight. Now, there is people that are excluded from the kingdom of God. This, to me, I don't see how you could be universalist. You'd have to come from a different approach. It says here in Revelation 21, eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Uh, shall I read in the Greek? Tois de delois kai apistois kai menois, kai phonesin kai pornois kai pharmakois kai idoloitres kai tois fedeisen to. Meros autonente, te, kaimene, thanatos o All right, how many lists of sinners are in this? Types of sinners. How many types of sinners? If you count them up quickly in the Greek and in the English, you'll find the same. It is eight. There are eight, but it doesn't stop there. If you go to Revelation chapter twenty-two and verse number fifteen, you'll discover here that there's another list of those who are kept outside. The word outside is extremely important. If you listen to the last podcast, it kind of implies the leper. Outside, it's not included. All right, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Okay, all those who love and all those who practice falsehood. That's number 15. Let's make sure, yeah. How many of those in the Greek and the English says the same thing? There are six. So you'll see the list of sinners that we have. There's two lists of sinners, and they fall on numerals of 8 and 6, but that means that they fall on either side of 7. It's extremely important. Because John makes them so close to 7, 6, and 8, they narrowly miss the kingdom. They miss it. It shows them dropping off, not being a part of the kingdom of God, not having inheritance in 7, which means that these people will ultimately have their exclusion from the kingdom, the importance of staying away from this sin. It's very powerful. And nothing that's wicked shares number seven in the book of Revelation. The word dragon occurs 13 times, Satan 8 times, the word uh, devil 4 times, serpent 4 times. All right? So it goes on and on and on. Which is to say that that's the theology of the book of Revelation. is wrapped up in the numerals. So there's a lot of takeaways from this study. The best thing I say is I hope that it inspires you to go through Revelation with an open mind and with an open heart, asking the Holy Spirit to show you what His truth is in God's Word. Access the blessing of God. Understand that Jesus is on the throne. And understand that there will be people that are excluded from the kingdom if they take part in lives of sin. It's important. But you know something? As a good student of the Word of God, the more you get into God's Word, the more excited you will be. I encourage you to do it. All right, God bless you. Remember, letters from Jesus on on Amazon.com. Go for it. Pick up your copy of Letters from Jesus today. It'll be a blessing to you. Look, it's going to be stuff like this in there. So I handle the second, third chapters of Revelation. It really will be a blessing to you. And if you're a Bible study leader, you're a pastor, you're a minister, you really need it for your collection. Okay, God bless you. We'll talk to you next time here on Greek for the Week. Be blessed. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support us further, you may visit us on the web at lightoftoday.org. God bless and good studying.